Well, we are continuing on our journey through the seven signs in the Gospel of John. And um, as we're, we're going to read the scripture of um, which cleanses the temple, and I've had a couple people ask why the money and why the chaos behind me. Um, and that's kind of props to kind of get us in the mood for for hearing this story. Um, you know, we don't exchange money here like that happened in the temple, but, but we take money and we do things with it. As I read this story, I'm gonna ask that you open your hearts and your minds to whatever it might teach you this day. John 2, 13 through 25, hear these words. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found people selling cattle and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. Making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, what sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, this temple has been under construction for 46 years, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. And he was, after he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. When he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name because they saw signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, would not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to testify about anyone, for he himself knew what was in everyone. May God grant us understanding of this whole um, idea, this whole these whole words this day, the word of God for the people of God. So I have to, you know, confess to you that I haven't ever really preached on this scripture before. Um, sometimes it gets wrapped up in, in things like, well, should we do fundraising in the church or how should we handle money in the church and, and all of those things rather than maybe what the story is leading us to feel and to believe and to understand and take within us. So we're gonna go through this scripture today and maybe a way that, that you're not accustomed to. Um, first off, I wanna know how many of you regularly do spring cleaning? Regularly. You notice, however, that I am not raising my hand. 
How many of you grew up with that practice? Yeah, my mom was the queen of spring, spring cleaning. Each year she would declare that this was the time and we needed to, to do spring cleaning. And, and the ones that needed to do the cleaning were my brother Randy and I. And we did everything we could to get out of it, but that never worked. Mom knew every trick. Mom knew every way that we could, you know, that tummy ache that happened. Well, she would get us into, she would understand that that wasn't real and we'd have to, to clean anyhow. But mom's idea was that once a year, you'd go through, you'd empty all the cupboards and you'd wash the cupboards out. You'd, you'd, often wash all the dishes that had been in the cupboard, never mind that they had been washed the night before. It was spring cleaning day and they needed to be washed. Now, you know, my mom is 93 and I talked to her recently and she had just finished washing out the cupboards in her kitchen. <laughs> okay. Well, so the cupboards in the kitchen were a part of it, but also we're washing the walls and the ceiling and and um, scrubbing the grouch in the bathroom and, and all those things. That was all part of spring cleaning and it was all part of the way that she uh, had a rhythm to her year. Now, I think that um, you, know, you kind of got the impression that I don't do that and, and I may have cleaned my cupboards once a decade, maybe. Not that they're messy or dirty or anything, you know, they have doors. And walls, when you're ready to paint, that's a good time to wash them. You know, I don't know if that came out of a time when people smoked regularly in the home and that icky stuff would get on the, on the walls and ceiling. I don't, know, I don't know why, but that was part of her rhythm of life. It still is. No one in the house smokes anymore. And, you know, but she doesn't feel like her, her time to move into the warmer months is right unless she can do that spring cleaning. One of the things that I realize as I think back, cause you know, I said my mom and I recently had this conversation about her doing this spring cleaning, um, is that that makes my mom happy. It makes my mom happy to be able to do that, to go into that, to go into her kitchen and it smells fresh and clean mom can't really see anymore. She is legally blind, but she knows that her kitchen is clean. And she knows that things are in order. She knows that she can find what she needs. I'm not quite sure how my dad feels about being the, the one to do most of the cleaning, but he good naturedly does it for her. This kind of cleaning or cleansing, sometimes it's called of the temple that Jesus did, um, is a little bit of a different kind of cleaning, except that there's, there's something that happens at the other end of it. This story is in all four gospels. Now it's interesting to note that John is the only one that has it at the beginning of Jesus's ministry. The other three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, called the synoptic gospels, have it at the kind of the end just before
before um, when Jesus first comes into Jerusalem, just before the crucifixion. The story is in there, and 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 there are some reasons that that might be accurate. Um, John's gospel, instead of ending with that, the thing before crucifixion is the story of the raising of Lazarus. In the synoptics, it's almost like Jesus does this thing, and then that makes the the church leaders angry, and that leads to his his arrest. And in John, is the um, the raising of Lazarus that brings about that that arrest. So. Um, there are some theories as, you know, as I said, I hadn't ever really preached this before. I studied it, of course, in seminary and things like that. But I wanted to know why there the two difference. What do the scholars think about the fact that three are, are at the end and one is at the beginning? Um, the uh, synoptics, um, as I said, have that where this is the thing that causes kind of the camel to break the, the straw to break the camel's back to get Jesus arrested. And that makes sense to them. Um, also, there's this whole piece of the, the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are one style and John is another. The first three are more like a historical walk through the life of Jesus. John approaches things a little bit differently. It's more about the theology behind the story. Usually John has a reason for everything that John does in the progression in, in John's gospel. So those are some things. Um, and then there's other scholars that are completely saying, no, 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 it's not. It's not one or the other. There's actually two stories about Jesus cleansing the temple. And that they're, that, you know, the three synoptic gospels just don't include the first one. And John doesn't include the second one. To me, that doesn't make a lot of sense, but, you know, that's kind of out there. As we kind of look at this text, as we, we explore it together, when we look at verses 13 and 14, they show Jesus going up into Jerusalem to the temple. Um, there's a little bit of history that might help us understand what this is all about. In Jewish thought, the temple was not just the place where um, sacrifices took place. It was much more than that. Um, it wasn't just the place where they gathered for festivals. The temple was the dwelling place of God. And that was, um, it was the physical reminder of God's presence in the midst of God's people. The Holy of Holies was the center of the temple, and that was considered God's actual throne room. So, you know, consider that. Um, you can kind of trace this importance of the idea of the temple through the Old Testament. Um, there was the tabernacle. Have you heard that word? There was the, the, um, the tent that the Israelites carried through the desert. This tabernacle functioned as kind of a portable temple. 
Um, when they set it up, God would manifest God's presence um, by descending in a cloud of glory upon the tent. That was part of that story. They would have all grown up with that story. Since centuries later, King Solomon built the first temple in Jerusalem. Um, if you look at 1 Kings 5 through 8, you can read that story. Um, the key thing is that after Solomon built the temple, God appeared to him and said, I have heard the prayer and the plea you have made before me. I have consecrated this temple which you have built and putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. Again, God dwelled with God's people <clears throat> in the temple. And then there comes the part of the story where Solomon and his sons made some real big mistakes. They, they abandoned God, if you know those stories. Um, things went downhill from there. After centuries of decline, Israel was conquered by Babylon, Babylon and the temple was destroyed. Um, 586, somewhere in there. Um, it was later rebuilt during the return to Jerusalem under Ezra and Nehemiah, but it was kind of a weak reflection of what the temple had been. It wasn't the, the glorious part of that. In 20 uh, BCE, Herod the Great made his try at rebuilding the temple. Um, Herod was a ruthless and powerful administrator. He built fortresses and structures all through Israel, um, and not just for the, the Jewish temple, but he built temples to the, um, the pagans as well. He, built, he did all these things because he thought it would make him more important. That kind of sound like the Herod that we've heard of. His vision was for his own glory and for economic and um, political stability throughout the land. This was the same Herod that after um, the Magi, okay, you remember doing that story recently, the Magi um, didn't return to him after visiting baby Jesus or child Jesus. He sent his soldiers to go kill every boy under the age of two. This was a man who, I don't, I'm not even sure what we would call him today, narcissist or someone who was hungry for power. That was Herod, but he built this temple. Um, he thought that it would, it would enhance his legacy. It was, you know, re, kind of reclaimed by the Jews after it was built. And, um, and the kind of the thing to think about is the temple was kind of a, a seat of uh, national pride for the people there. Um, it showed that God dwelt with them, that it was their connection with God. God wasn't on um, Mount Olympus like the Greek gods. God didn't live in Asgard like the Norse gods. God was here and accessible. That was how they saw their temple. By the time of Jesus, it really had stretched more into the political rather than a faith statement. They had this temple and these things happened there. Um, it was kind of a rallying place for the Jews to do their own thing and kind of thumb their nose at the Roman authority. They got to do what they wanted within their temple. 
This temple that Herod built was a massive structure. Massive structure. The resource that I looked at said it was 26 acres. Now, I can't quite wrap my mind around a, a, a structure that big. It was twice as large as the previous temple. The complex consisted of four increasingly smaller courts. The outermost court, called the Court of the Gentiles, was not considered holy ground. This was the place where the non-Jews could come to worship the God of Israel. And it was the most likely place where this kind of trade that we're being told was, was going on. When Jesus arrives at the temple, he finds people trading and drives them out. Many take this action as that condemnation that we talked about of price gouging and corrupt business practices. And I think that that's partially true, that that was probably part of that whole piece of Jesus as a justice keeper. In fact, he says, um, he takes offense at them making my father's house into a market. That's verse 16. So what, what was going on in the temple? This was Passover. So this was the time when all of the Jews made their journey um, to commemorate the deliverance from, from Pharaoh or from slavery in Egypt where a line, uh, lamb was slain, blood was sprinkled on the doorposts of their houses, the angel of death would pass them over. And so this was that remembrance, an important remembrance for them. They came from all over the country, um, across Israel and the Roman Empire, um, to do their sacrifices. That's, that's what the Jews did. Merchants seeing an opportunity to make money set up areas in the outer temple courts in order to sell animals. Money changers also set up business to exchange foreign currency into Jewish or Tyrrhenian coins, coins that were issued in the, the province of Tyre. Um, they were, those particular coins were, um, had a higher silver consi um, consistency the money changers and the animal dealers charge a high fee for their services, exploiting people who came to worship. The atmosphere would be kind of like a, a street fair would be today. Lots and lots of people, lots of barter, bartering happen, happening. Um, but instead of selling hot dogs and whatever and Cokes, they would be selling um, these animals, and there would also be all the feeding going on for those animals and um, the cleaning up after these animals. Because think about cows and other animals, what there would be some cleaning to go. So Jesus comes into the temple and it tells us that he makes a, a, a whip out of cords and drives out of the temple the cows and, and other things and the sheep and he poured the money all over. He tipped over the tables and all of those things. And he said about the doves, take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. The scene kind of, I've always been 
um, understood this to be kind of a scene of Jesus being angry. And that it's and that's the important thing that Jesus is driving all these hor these people out who are doing these horrible things. How many of you kind of had that that that's the backdrop of this story? Jesus is angry, and I think it's true. Jesus probably was angry, and that's not wrong. You and I both get angry, don't you? I know I do, and it's just part of what what is part of our emotional thing. I don't think, however, that Jesus being angry is the most important part of this story. I think if we only focus on Jesus's anger or our perceived feelings about Jesus's anger, that we miss the point of the story. But I think it's important to understand what the temple was and how important it was and what was happening there before we really get to the meat of what I see in this story. You see, I think that probably Jesus knew that all of that happened in the temple. I think Jesus grew up knowing that there were, were cattle and sheep and doves and all those things. That was all part of the world that, that Jesus grew up in. That wasn't anything new. He didn't walk into there that day and say, wow, there are cows and sheep here. What are they doing in this place? Because he knew that that had been part of it. But I think, I think that Jesus was pushing against what I'll call business as usual. I think Jesus went to the temple that day with one purpose to throw out and overturn business as usual. There are times when we need the tables of our lives for churned and the animals that we cling to thrown out and our cupboards wide open and fresh air let in. Because I think it's really, really easy to get trapped into business as usual time and stress, keeping our head above the water, and everything else becomes a priority by disrupting the well-established, accepted economic practices of the temple, Jesus publicly reveals that he is more than a pilgrim. He's more than just someone visiting the temple. He's the son of God who dwells in the temple and as such, he has the authority to disrupt the temple's usual activities. The same old, same old isn't going to work anymore. Have you ever operated on autopilot? Have you ever drove past the, the exit you were supposed to get off on? Have you ever drove right past the store you were going to We do it all the time. We do it in other ways as well. We do what comes next. We go through the motions. Life becomes mechanical. You show up, but you're not really there. That's business as usual. 
Have you ever smiled at someone? That smile that says, oh, I'm good, everything's okay, but it's really not? Business as usual. Have you ever felt hollow and empty but didn't want anyone to see? Business as usual. Churches can experience this as well. I think many of the mainline churches in the last few decades, I was going to say a few years, but I think it's a few decades, kind of got in this business as usual stuff. We do the things we do because that's the way we do them. We teach the way we teach because that's the way we do it. We live the way we live. We have our potlucks. We have our, our ministries that we do. We do the things that we do because that's the way we do it. It's kind of, it's, we fill out the church calendar with the things that we've always done. And then something happened in our lives that's beyond anything we could expect. Now, before I talk about that, something that happened, I'll say that many of that same old, same old business as usual, that, that 1950s model of doing church wasn't working. It wasn't working. Churches were failing. People were leaving the church in droves. That was, that was just a, all a part of, of that business as usual. What happened was March 15th or 22nd, depending on where it really hit your church, 2020, when the pandemic got so much that many churches had to close, many of the things that we normally did and, and, and lived through and were a part of our lives went to the side. Some of us couldn't even go into our church, let alone go into worship. Things were, were changed radically. Things that were really a part of us changed radically. There's this book that I've read, and I think I probably mentioned it before, that Brian McLaren wrote called The Church on the Other Side. He's referring to the church on the other side of the postmodern world. Um, the, and I often wonder, you know, I was kind of sitting, I'm working on my, my doctorate dissertation right now, and I was thinking about this book, and I was thinking about what would Brian McLaren say is the church on the other side of this. I don't even really have a name for this. I don't think any of us do. I don't think we know what to call this. In a sense, though, if we really think about it, we have been given an incredible gift, and that is a clean slate. You know, everything has, has kind of gone away from us. You know, Jesus on the temple was getting the focus off of those money changers and those marketplace things. And he talks about being his body being the temple. And often I think we think of the church in terms of busyness, business as usual, but we have this incredible opportunity before us right here, right now, that we have an empty slate. This congregation has done a lot 
to to reformat who they are the you know the apartments next door the the fact that that we can have worship and and have created this space that we have in that keeps us all safe that we um you know are looking toward uh hiring a permanent pastor in the future we're looking toward the ministries that we that we want to continue ministries that we have energy for things that we want to do justice that we want to help bring forward but i think as we walk into the next weeks and months as we begin to figure out how to be neighbors to the neighbors next door as we figure out how to be church post this thing called the pandemic i think that we need to ask ourselves who we are you know if we could describe who we are as a church who we are as christians when we take it back to the individual who am i on the other side of this thing you know who am i and how is my faith I might ask myself, how is my soul? When everything kind of has been stripped away, you get that opportunity, that privilege to look more deeply into who you are. And my, my hope and prayer is that that question, who you are, leads you to the realization of whose you are. Who is the author and the perfecter of this congregation? It's not me. It's not Justin. It's not our leadership team. It's not our care team. It's, it's the, the faith in God that we profess. It's the soul that belongs to, to God apart from who we are because of whose we are, the image of God within us um, we have been issued an, uh, an invitation to come back to refocus, to remember, again, whose we are, to take a break from business as usual, to focus on what's really important. There's this song, and I was listening to it this morning on the way here. Often when I have a song that pops into my head, I'm listening to the radio on the way here and that song is played. And this was this morning's song. It's called The Heart of Worship. It's from Matt Redmond. It says, when the music fades and all is stripped away, I simply come longing just to bring something that's of worth that will bless your heart. I bring you more than a song for a song in itself is not what you have required. You search much deeper within through, through the way things appear. You're looking into my heart. I'm coming back to the heart of worship. It's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the things I've made it when it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. King of endless worth, no one could express how much you deserve, though I'm weak and poor. All I have is yours, every single breath. I'll bring you more than a song, for a song in itself is not what you've required. 
You search much deeper within through the way things appear. You're looking into my heart. I'm coming back to the heart of worship. And it's all about you. Regardless of who we are, what we've done or left undone, or how we see or judge our life, we are the temple of God. And there is one who stands in the temple of our life, interrupting business as usual. So tell me this, what does the temple of your life need today? What does our church need today? What are we being called to become? What do we need to clean out? I'm not asking this. I'm not asking about what needs to happen so that you can become holy or become a temple, but so that you can see that you already are. You already are the temple and that you just have to claim what's already yours. Jesus does not make us into something we are not. He calls us back to who we have always been. God, grant us this vision this day. Amen.